0: Today on the show, we made a deal with the devil, and now we're stuck with regrets and this podcast. Welcome to Lore Party, the podcast that explores the stories, characters, and universes behind some of our favorite
1: video games. My name's Abu. My name is Brett. And today, Brett, we're talking about
0: Witcher again, and we're talking about one of the best parts of The Witcher, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I think it is, it's my favorite story, and I think as far as almost all of gaming storytelling that I've played, it's probably my favorite Wow,
0: gaming, all time?
1: Yeah, the story in this, which I guess we'll get into.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's address the elephant in the room right off the bat. Which Witcher DLC do you think is better? We got to get that out of the way.
1: Yeah, I think that, I think overall it's blood and wine because of the new area, Toussaint and all that. But as far as the story goes, I think it's this, head and shoulders.
0: Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fully agree with you, and I'm definitely going to walk that same line, <laughs> and I'm going to say both. Blood and Wine was definitely my favorite expansion, but the story in Hearts of Stone just simply can't be topped, and that's what we're going to dive into today.
1: Yeah, and especially, like I said, for $10 <laughs> to get this story and to get this gameplay, it's just an incredible value and experience. Definitely. So,
0: Before we jump into the meat and potatoes and really talk about some of the big themes, talk about our opinions and thoughts on the story that takes place in Hearts of Stone, I figured it was probably a good idea to just run through a brief summary of what happens. Again, we're assuming if you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening to Lore Party, that you've already played The Witcher, preferably you've already played Hearts of Stone, or at least know what it's about. So to start us off, CDPR did something that Andrzej Sapkowski has done a lot for The Witcher. He took an old European legend, in this case, CDPR took an old Polish legend and converted it into a modern modern story and fit it inside the world of The Witcher. So for Hearts of Stone, the Polish legend that they took from was the legend of, I'm going to butcher this name, um, Pan Twardowski? <laughs> Do you think I'm saying that right?
1: <laughs> yeah, like Pan Twardowski. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. the W's got to be a (laughs) V. Twardovsky, yeah.
0: Yeah, that that sounds better. So the legend of Pan Twardovsky is very similar to the basic plot of Hearts of Stone. In that story, Pan sells his soul, is is a man who sells his soul to the devil. He gains magical powers, he gains wealth, he, he gains glory and prestige, and then ultimately he tries to outwit that devil because the deal that he makes is that the devil takes his soul. Uh, in exchange for all all the wealth and power that he gains. He tries to outwit and trick the devil, and he himself ends up being tricked, and ultimately the devil wins in the end. In Hearts of Stone, we start off with Geralt accepting a contract from a noble named Olgird von Everick. Geralt accepts a contract from him to go kill a monster toad, and Everick points out that this toad might have been a prince at some point, um, which, of course... Once again, something that CDPR and Andrzej Sapkowski do time and time again is a reference to the age-old story of the Princess and the Toad. Geralt takes that quest, and he goes and kills this Toad. Turns out the Toad is actually a prince, and he's an Ophiri prince. The Ophiri guards show up. They capture Geralt. They intend to take him back for trial and ultimately to be hanged for his crimes for (laughs) killing their prince. Uh, And that's when we meet Gontro Dim, one of the most iconic characters in The Witcher. Odim helps Geralt get off this ship, escape from the Ophiri, and in exchange, he asks for Geralt's help. Dim needs help dealing with Von Everick, who he made a deal with, and now he wants to cash in on that deal. But before he can, he has to fulfill three of Von Everick's wishes, and he needs Geralt's help to do that. Ultimately, Geralt learns what the three wishes are. One, he needs to entertain Olgierd's brother, Vladimir, for one night. Sounds easy enough until you learn the technicalities. Two, he needs to obtain Maximilian Borsotti's house. And three, he needs to obtain the violet rose that he gave to his love, Iris, on the last day he saw her.
1: And so, with the help of Odim, and the help in parentheses, because he kind of stands on the sidelines a lot, Geralt goes about completing these tasks. He attends a wedding with Vladimir Spirit, as we'll find out in Dead Man's Party. He kind of has to revive him. The heist to get Borsodi's house, which we're not going to talk too much about, but was very cool, I thought, in that it was this traditional heist in how you have this weird cast of characters. You come together and had a lot of humor in it. He then goes to the Von Everick estate to obtain said rose, and that will be the last one, scenes from a marriage, that we'll really get into. And then at the very end, when all said and done, Geralt basically gets to choose. And when I say Geralt gets to choose, I mean the player gets to choose. Do you let Odin just take Von Everick's soul? Or do you accept this challenge of a riddle to save Olgierd? And I chose to, it, when I played it, I chose to save Olgierd. But that was simply because I thought that I was supposed to do. Um, what did you pick?
0: I actually did the same thing that you did. I ended up confronting Odim. I solved those riddles. It actually took me way too long to solve those riddles. I had to Google one of them, which is embarrassing, but whatever. I have neither the time nor the patience to run around in circles and try hey, and solve them. I have
1: one. no shame. I instantly Googled it because I was <laughs> like, eh, I think there's something. And that's when I found like that viper sword is there or something. So I was like, oh, that's <laughs> right. why I do it. Because that's the only time to get that.
0: Right. I ultimately ended up doing what you did too, though. Uh, I helped Von Everick free himself from Odim, free himself from the contract, and I think it's the better ending, because you really get to see Von Everick truly feel those emotions, feel the regret that he hasn't felt for God knows how long, and it, it just dawns on him what he's done, what the life that he's lived, and he decides right then and there that he's going to live a different life, he's going to take a different path, and he's going to try and make up for the choices that he made uh, when he was immortal and when he had made this deal with Odin, So I think it's probably the better ending that you can get.
1: Yeah, and, and again, it's something that maybe we can do at the end, but was he worthy of being saved? Oh,
0: yeah, that's a heavy question. Um, definitely something we should circle back around to at the end because I don't think we can answer that until we talk about what actually takes place during some of these quests that you go on while you're completing these three tasks. I think before we get to answering that question, we should dive into two of the quests. Like you said, we're not going to dive into the Bersodi heist quests, because that would make this episode way longer than it's already going to be. We're going to focus on two of the main quests that really stood out to us. And that, of course, is Dead Man's Party. And then the second quest we're going to talk about is one of the most tragic quests in a game full of tragedy is, of course, the history with Iris, the history with Olgierd's wife the quest called Scenes from a Marriage. Uh, So let's take it chronologically. What were your thoughts on Dead Man's Party, that first quest where you have to help Vladimir?
1: Dead Man's Party was, to me, a ton of fun because when I played this all through, it was right as Blood and Wine was coming out. Like I just binged on The Witcher 3, the first part, just the main game. I played that in like maybe two weeks, and then I was like, okay, this game is beyond incredible. I got to play the DLCs and then I <laughs> I binged the two DLCs and I swear it was like three or four days and just <laughs> ran through them and so what I liked about Dead Man's Party was it involves the lesser people just having a night Yeah, and if they're going for this realism which so many people again I have a degree in history with the specialty being medieval A lot of people have these preconceived notions and often incorrect about medieval, but a lot of times, like, this was it. Someone's getting married. Okay, we're going to have a party. We're going to get drunk, and it's one night that we can literally not forget uh, the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. And so you really got to see that here, even like with the dwarves when they play Gwent or just the goofy games he has to go get. I can't remember. What was it they had to jump into the pool and get? Was it a ring or?
0: I forget what the pool was. There was definitely something in a pig pen right like you yeah to he had to hoard the uh, yeah he had to <laughs> put the
1: pigs back in there he had to go get the drunken fire breather yeah and so i thought that was really cool just to be like hey and then again it's shawnee it's an old i mean i guess it's an old friend but as we'll get into shawnee was yeah, really a friend is doing a lot of work of a there fling. <laughs> yeah yeah it was an old fling that is like oh hey you just happen to be in the sewers of Oxenfurt helping these soldiers when i'm trying to kill this toad and so I just thought it was a really good slice of life that they could have for Velen, especially a war-torn Velen.
0: Oh, I agree. Slice of life is such a perfect way to put it. Like This quest sort of just introduced us to the everyday life of someone living in the world of of The Witcher, right? Because normally we're following these iconic characters, these huge political actors in the story, literal sorcerers and demons, and it's the end of the world, and we're on this epic quest and we're doing these huge ginormous things in the world. And sometimes you lose perspective of like what the everyday peasant's life must be like. And this quest in particular gives us a nice look into that. And I agree, like the slice of life that we get from this quest was absolutely a treat. But I want to dive a little bit into that Shawnee relationship that you mentioned, because there's quite a bit of history there between Shawnee and Geralt. And this quest starts off with a lot of sexual tension <laughs> between Geralt and Shani. What are your opinions on the whole Shani-Geralt relationship? I don't know if you're a Yennefer or a Triss guy, but what, what do you think about Shawnee? Because she is sort of throughout the entire story, just this fling on the side.
1: Yeah, it's someone, and again, when I played the game, which would have been a couple of years ago, I had not read the books yet. And so without going too far off on this, it seems like the game, The Witcher 3, when I didn't play anything before it, really wants you to be with Triss because she's their first. She's actually not their first, but she's there with, um, in Novigrad and you do all that stuff with her and then you really meet up with Yen and Skellige. But after reading the books, it's like, whoa, yeah. they seem to treat those two very differently. And then Shani kind of seems to be what the next level would be. Where it's like, oh, it's Yen Yentris. Yen Triss. Oh, and then Shawnee's over there. <laughs> but I often think that that might have been just because that was one of the few women that they could actually bring back and put in The Witcher 1. And then brought her back in this. Because she's in Blood of Elves, where she delivers a note, like Dandelion knows her at the Oxenford Academy. And she delivers a note to Geralt, who's hiding and trying to find a guy named Rance, who's trying to find Ciri. Like the original, we got to find Siri story before The Witcher 3, right. when One everybody was trying to find Siri, yeah. And it also goes to mention that Shawnee was 17 in Blood of Elves. Ooh. And so she deli- yeah she delivers this message <laughs> and her and Geralt kind of, you know, they bang for lack of a better term. And, and here we go. And again, I hear everybody going, oh, but it's the medieval times and oh, things were different. And I'm like, yeah, you know, she's not having kids. They're not getting married. But at the same time, regardless of what it is, this was a book that came out twenty years ago. So at least in this game, you know, she, she's not seventeen. <laughs> for for that's what it is. But for the most part, like that was her role. She gives she um she gives this location, this notice of a lead on rants, and then she's gone. And she never really comes back in the books again. So it was just someone they decided to pick and it made sense to put her in. The Oxenfort Sewers is where Geralt finds her here. Uh, and again it was, you know, 15 13 years something like that yeah she's definitely books. not
0: 17 anymore but i no. think a lot of a lot of her feelings from when she was 17 still are true here he gerald is of course they're both older now and they have that history together but i think Shawnee is still sort of feels like that little girl who uh i keep saying girl and it, it's really uncomfortable she was 17 um which again is weird yeah <laughs> but uh, you know she was she was younger at that time she was in college and she fell for this, like, older, rugged man. Uh, and I think even now in the games, coming across Geralt again, she feels like that again. She feels like she's this, uh, this young woman who falls for this again, like, rugged, handsome, older man. Um, but yeah, like, setting aside the weirdness of the age difference, I think they probably have the best chemistry outside of, of course, Geralt and Yennefer having that history. I, I honestly, in my opinion... Shani and Geralt have a lot of chemistry on screen.
1: But Shani did remind me of Shani from the books, like you said there, where it's this younger girl, younger woman who's entranced by this witcher. You know, that was kind of the same with Essie Davin, uh, Little Eye from A Little Sacrifice.
0: Oh, yeah. And it's the same thing where one. it's yeah. like, oh,
1: she, she's entranced by this witcher. And I don't know if it's one of those where, because again, Geralt's a mutant like he doesn't he's clean shaven in the books every artist rendition you see of him like this is not some classically ruggedly handsome person like no he's a he's a freak he's a mutant right and he's so, got cat eyes <laughs> yeah he's got cat eyes his pale skin and just yeah he's just gross looking <laughs> but at the same time it's like oh these women and i didn't know if this is just one of those is it just feeding into a male fantasy where the women are just going to want to want this guy because of it and they dig I shouldn't say they dig too deep because it's a short story and they really don't dig that deep into it. But yeah, now that Shawnee's older in this, you kind of get to see where, oh, she might actually like him. But then it's like, no, she might just, you know, she might just want
0: to have a night,
1: even though she says she doesn't.
0: Definitely sort of the emotional core of this DLC is Shawnee, in my opinion, at least Dead Man's Party, at least this quest in particular. But of course, the other important character here is Vladimir.
1: Yeah, Vladimir took the role of your... Typical, like, roguish, smooth-talking character. But as as long as the writing is good, which it was here, I'm going to like that type of character. Like, it's it's real easy to pull off. And I did like how, in relation to Shani, that, you know, it was like, oh, Shani started to fall for him. I'm like, yeah, it's Geralt's body, whom she's obviously physically attracted to, and all of these lovely things that he's saying are coming out. But not only that, the dude is just reeking of confidence. And what he's saying and how he's acting is obviously exactly what she would like Geralt to be like, Yeah, <laughs> but that is not in any way Geralt at all. Geralt's seriousness and his attitude and his
0: old personality just plays off so well from Vladimir's sort of relaxed, charmed, confident, like playboy personality. And it, honestly, that was such a nice change of tone and a, such, such a nice change of pace to see Geralt, even if it wasn't technically him, loosened up a little bit. And you're spot on. You're absolutely right that Shawnee fell for that. She fell for the bad boy act. And the entire time, I was like, "No, you're better than that, Shawnee."
1: See, but I don't. I don't really even think that it's a bad boy act. I think it's it's the confidence. I just think that it's, true. He's true. so I mean, confident he's and co- charming
0: and confident. I can yeah. give you that. But uh, like, hold on, I, I wrote down this quote because this is quite literally the first words that Vladimir says to Shawnee death was a small price to pay to lie on a lap so lovely and so near the wonders concealed a bit higher.
1: <laughs> well, he's got away with words.
0: I mean, he's got away with words. I mean, very soon after that, hold on, there's another quote. I had so much fun writing these quotes down. And very soon after that, they're in the crypt. Vladimir and Geralt have begrudgingly agreed to share the body and go to this wedding. And Vladimir hops back in Geralt's body and he's like, all right, Shani, let's get out of here. And he says, quote, right then, Sugar Plum, what say you we leave this dank crypt?
1: <laughs> dank.
0: <laughs> yeah, the nicknames were incredible. He calls her ginger muffin at one point, sugarplum. Yeah, Plum. the ginger um, muffin. <laughs> He's got a way with words. And that only added to his charm, obviously. But one of the things I wrote down in my notes was just like, bad boy or not, you know, we can split hairs on whether or not he's he's doing the whole bad boy act. But Shawnee definitely falls for that.
1: Yeah, he actually is, those words notwithstanding, he's actually pretty (laughs) respectful because he does agree not to really do anything. He also agrees to step out of the body. You know, when so Geralt can come back in.
0: Yes, that's true. For for a dead guy who was a bandit and Olgierd's brother and someone who was obviously this Playboy drunkard, he's he kinda really honored his deal with Geralt, you know? He could have just taken over Geralt and that's that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would have been a whole other <laughs> DLC. <laughs> where you play as Vladimir von Everick in a witcher's body. <laughs> so what or how did you feel about the ending of this quest With when O'Dim comes and takes care of Vladimir?
0: I mean, throughout the story, we still, to this point, don't really know who O'Dim is. I think the end of this quest is sort of the first huge red flag that this guy is way more powerful than we first imagined, right? Because Vladimir, at the end, decides he is having too much fun. He does sort of go the bad, evil route, of wanting to just stay inside Geralt's body and try and take it over and remain past his time in the, in the mortal world and not return to the world of the dead. Odim comes in and forcefully yanks him out of Geralt's body and forces him back into the world of the dead and tortures him too. Like it's a painful experience for Vladimir. And I think this is the first time we see Odim enjoy causing pain to someone else, but also being way more powerful than we imagined. Like this guy just casually. Tortured a ghost and shot him back to the world of the dead like it was nothing. That's scary.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's like they said, they were like, you didn't have to do that. You know, you could have just sent him back. And Odin was just like, well, you're right. I didn't have to, but I clearly wanted to. Right. And yeah, he took this almost perverse like pleasure in it. And so that to me was when I kind of like my ears pricked up and I was like, whoa, this dude might not just be powerful. Like he just might be straight on sadistic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this moment was very intentional and it was meant to show the player that Odim is not to be fucked with and we better watch out who we're dealing with. Uh, so, so the last thing I also wanted to mention is at the end, at the end of this quest, Vladimir actually writes a letter to Olgird and he's inside Geralt's body and he writes the letter with Geralt's blood. You can't actually read the letter in the game, I think, but of course the geniuses out in the world on the internet found a way to get into the game files and pull out that letter. But I wanted to read it because I think it gives us a really sort of tragic insight into Olgierd and uh, their relationship as brothers. So this is the letter that you have to pull out of like the game files and you can't actually read in the game. Olgierd, my damned dear brother, you've no idea what joy you brought me with that idea of showing me a good time. True, the man you sent is as fitting company for a lark as a hoe handle. But never mind that. What matters is I enjoyed myself. And how? It was a cracking good wedding with vodka flowing in streams and plenty of pretty things to rest the eye on. I miss you, but take your time coming to join me. Live and enjoy your life, your brother Vlad. And that last sentence in particular sort of strikes a chord with me. It seems so tragic. It's clear that they had a good relationship with each other. And he ends with saying, take your time joining me. Don't die yet, which is sort of funny because... We know Olgierd is immortal. He's not dying anytime soon. And then he also adds, live and enjoy your life, which is also so tragic given what we know about Olgierd. He doesn't feel any emotion. He can't enjoy his life. He's incapable of enjoying his life. That's the tragedy of Olgierd. He's immortal, but he's incapable of enjoying the life he gets to live forever. I'm actually kind of surprised this letter didn't make it in the final cut because I think it's kind of powerful and it shows us some insight into their relationship as brothers. Hey there Lore Party listeners, Michael here. I just want to take a few moments and encourage you to listen to my show here on Lore Party. It's called Minigame. Every episode, I take about 5 to 10 minutes and explore a unique perspective on games as small as Her Story or as big as Wolfenstein or Star Wars. While the other guys like to talk about lore and history and game universes, I like to focus on things like plot and character and theme. Now, if you disagree with my opinion or my perspective, I would love to hear your voice. Join in the discussion at our subreddit at r slash Thank you very much for listening. And now back to the show. So moving on from Dead Man's Party, the second major quest in Hearts of Stone is the one where we learn all about Olgierd's marriage and the love of his life, Iris, who she is, what she meant to Olgierd, and their tragic story in scenes from a marriage. You made it sound like this was one of your all-time favorite quests.
1: Yeah, the, I guess the main reason is, you know, this one isn't anchored in... You know, a heist. It's not anchored in some massive battle. It's not even some huge, you know, wild hunt style boss fight. Uh, you do get a boss fight against the thing of the caretaker, which. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, when I played it, I just remember it, it turned and kind of pulled back, and you see the like sewn on, like leathery looking uh, skin uh, over its face. And I'm like, okay. And then he's just got this huge, you know, shovel, which was. The weapon I used from that point on in everything (laughs) was that shovel just pirouetting everywhere, just smacking people around. That's
0: kind of fucked up, Brett. Now I am the caretaker. Yeah,
1: I'm the caretaker now. (laughs) I am become caretaker. (laughs) But I love that it was just so eerie and creepy. And to me, the sadness hit. And like you said, this is at the end of it. So you've got this crazy heist. And then you got the laid-back, kind of easy-going marriage. And then you get into just straight, like, horror here in that house. And I'm just like, nope. Gotta get through this house because of all this just weird shit happening. Yeah. This is, this
0: is the most witchery quest of the bunch.
1: Yes, absolutely. Like this whole thing could have been a short story from the earlier books. And I did I like the character of Iris because as like I said, her first Words, it might not have been her first, but it was like the first thing she basically says is, I am sadness. When he's like, Oh, are you Iris Von Everick? Are you the lady? And he's like, She's like, No, I am sadness. And I think that's the point is she's almost no longer Iris Von Everick. She is literally sadness in this mm-hmm. not spectral, but goat, not even ghost, I guess it's even spectral form. And as playing it, it just hit me of, Okay. Why is she still around, really? Is she you know, is she letting go? Does she want to let go? What is she doing? She's not. She doesn't seem to hate Olgierd. It's not like she's holding on to revenge and just saying, oh, if he comes back here, I'm going to get him. Or she's trying to get it. It's just this complete sad story that you can't really take anything good out of. It's tragic.
0: And her thoughts and feelings about Olgierd are so complicated. You know, someone else may have written that character to eventually just hate Olgeard. That's like sort of the natural thing you would assume she would do, right? You hate the person that ruins your life and betrayed you, somebody who was supposed to love you. But CDPR went the other route and made it much more nuanced. You know, this is somebody that she truly loved and felt for. And those feelings just don't go away, even in an extremely abusive relationship sometimes. And, you know, Olgir's relationship with her was definitely abusive. That's probably not a strong enough word for what they went through. But, uh, yeah, I agree. Iris is one of the most tragic characters in the Witcher series. Um, I do want to backpedal a little bit because we talked about the caretaker, who's one of the first creatures that Geralt comes across when he goes to the Von Everick estate. But the two creatures that he meets beforehand are also extremely interesting. The cat and the dog.
1: Yeah, cat, dog, iris companions, <laughs> and yeah, we learned that Olgerd essentially summoned them from another dimension. I guess as they're not really people, they're not really souls, and they're not actually a cat and a dog, but they don't really say what they are. And the caretaker, who the hell knows what that thing is? Yeah. And so oh basically, my God. yeah, the caretaker. I mean, was brought... doesn't
0: know who the caretaker is, right? Like, after no. Geralt defeats him, his reaction is literally what the fuck was that? Like, I think he quote, quote unquote, like says that.
1: No, the best line reading ever was that. What (laughs) the fuck was that?
0: (laughs) Yeah. You can just feel just like the panic and confusion in his voice because Harold, somebody who's been around for almost a century now has probably seen all their, all the freakiest shit in the world that there is to see.
1: The dude rode with the wild hunt.
0: (laughs) uh, Yeah. Yeah. Quite literally. Yeah. And it, when he comes across the caretaker, like, wow, this is something he hasn't seen and it scares the shit out of him. And it definitely scared the shit out of me. Um, but then, yeah, you're right. He talks to the cat and the dog, who are also apparently demons of some sort. They're tied to Iris. We learned that Olgierd was dabbling in black magic of some sort. And he summoned the caretaker and the cat and the dog to essentially look after Iris. So they are bound to her. They have to look after her as long as she exists in this world. Her mortal body might be gone. But like you said, her spirit is still tied to, the, tied to this world. So they're sort of stuck here, too. And they want to get the fuck out, so they sort of help Geralt on his quest of freeing Iris and her spirit from the mortal world so that they can be freed from their contract as well. Um, but I found some of the quips back and forth with the cat and the dog really funny. There was, there was that one line, actually, right at the start when Geralt comes across Iris's dead body. The cat says, quote for quote, A man should frame his wishes carefully. It forestalls disappointment. And I think thematically, that's such a good line because she could be talking about Olgier there, right?
1: Yeah, it's a Faustian, you know, Mephistopheles kind of story where you make a deal with the devil, you're never going to kind of get what you want. Like they want your soul. They're going to have all the power. They're not going to do exactly as you wish. And that is what happened here is Olgier made that deal and got more than he bargained for as the immortality basically ended his humanity and cut off his feelings for even his brother, and I'd say, and even Iris. You know, she's begging him, stay, let's do all this. He mu- straight murders her father, literally. Throws him against the wall, yeah, kills in him. in front of her. In front of her. her
0: father right in front of her.
1: And says, like, you're staying here. I'm going to go away. And he just doesn't care.
0: Although I will say... That letter at the end of the quest that you read, that he writes to Iris, sort of hints that he might not have the emotional reaction of having love for Iris, regretting what he's doing to Iris, regretting his actions, but it does show that there might maybe be a shred of decency left, because in that letter, he basically says, I left these, I mean, (laughs) literal demon things (laughs) here to take care of you, Iris. I realize that I'm causing you pain because of what I am, because I can't feel emotion, so I'm going to leave. I don't want to cause you any more pain.
1: Yeah, and I think also the fact that, you know, one of his wishes, if you will, for Geralt was to show his brother the time of his life, is that shows there there's some remorse that, for having him killed. Mm-hmm. And so he wants at least his brother to have one night again, even though he kind of couldn't really be there. So there is there's something a little bit in there of doing it, but at the same time, at least what I get out of it is there's that disconnect that he can never have again. That maybe he has the memories of loving his brother and his memories of loving Iris, but for the life of him now and I don't mean that to be in a funny way, that he <laughs> he just cannot connect with them again. Uh, as we know that right. he, he had he no intention. He's supposed to love his family. Yeah. yeah, and he had no intention of Geralt doing all three of these. They were supposed to be three impossible things. The only one that would not have really been impossible, if you will, would have been the Borsodi house. But that would have been highly, highly, highly improbable.
0: Right, right. The other two quests were literally about people who are now dead.
1: You yeah, know, and pretty much.
0: Olgeard would have would have had no expectation that Geralt could have brought either of them back from the dead. I will say, though, thinking about all three of the quests now, just now as we're speaking, it sort of hits me that, and something you said made me think of this, it sort of hits me that these three quests are almost Olgeard trying to tie up loose ends or trying to make up for what he's done, right? Like he's trying to make up for how he treated his brother and potentially got him killed by showing him the time of his life. He maybe knows that Iris's spirit is stuck in the real world, and the only way to free her is to take that rose, because that's the choice you make at the end of this quest, is whether or not you take the rose and free the earthly bond that keeps Iris's spirit bound to the mortal world. Maybe he knows that once Geralt takes that rose, she will finally be free to move on. And then finally, the Borsodi quest, you find out that in that Borsodi house is the will to donate all of their riches to charity right something along those lines I can't remember exactly what it was but again that, that might play into Olgierd feeling guilty about his life of banditry and stealing his entire life and maybe wanting to do something where he gives back so these three quests thematically at least seem to fall in line with Olgierd's regrets and the horrible things that he's done with his life and him potentially trying to make up for it
1: yeah it seems so easy when you say it like that <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, you're right. I didn't, man, it's so simplistic, but you're right. I didn't even think of it. Like, as soon as you were saying it, I was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, wait, but I never really thought of it that way. Right. Because I didn't think of it. Obviously, it was the Iris and the Vladimir one. But yeah, the Bersotti house one was also about like clearing his family name, right? Wasn't it the Von Everick, like papers and stuff in there? Because he didn't want the actual house, he wanted what was inside of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, again, incredible writing. Like just the fact that both of us realized that just now talking about it and we didn't even realize it playing the games speaks to how well written and how well thought through this story was. Well, that about wraps it up. We hope you enjoyed this episode because we certainly did. We had to record this as part of our contract with the devil. We're free. We're human now. We can feel all the emotions. One that we're feeling in particular is the hope that you'll go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show, because that really helps us grow. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.